As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, the, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly and I'm joined on the podcast today, I'm delighted to say, by both Jack Pitbrook and James Moore. Jack was at the Amex to watch Spurs' victory over Brighton in the rain and stuff last night. We'll be discussing that very, very shortly. But first, I've got a question for you, James, with your Spurs hat on. Happy St. Patrick's Day to everybody listening uh, to my voice and because we're recording this on St. Patrick's Day and I'm indeed recording it uh, from God's Little Island in the Atlantic. Who's your favourite Spurs player who happened to be Irish? Who's your favourite Irish Spurs player, James? Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, I suppose I'm of a vintage where it would have to be Robbie Keane, really. I, d- hmm. I don't... I mean, who else would there be from that kind of era? Like Matt, Matt, uh, sorry, Gary Doherty... Stephen, yeah. Stephen Carr was very good for a couple of seasons. Really, really good player. PFA Player of the Year twice in a row. Yeah. Um, which is going some, really. For Andy Reid. Yeah, Andy Reid, yeah. I <laughs> yeah. do vividly remember that goal he scored against Aston Villa in that kind of 5-1 win in what would have been like April 2005. Um, yeah, and his enthusiastic celebration. He, he was a man... Are we not talking about players who didn't look like footballers? Or was that, or was that another podcast? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a vintage thing, isn't it? If, you, if you're older than me, then you think Danny Blanchflower is the greatest uh, Irish Spurs player. If you're me, you absolutely know the answer is, is Pat Jennings, um, who, and with all due respect to people going on about Gordon Banks, who once Lev Yashin started to decline in the late 60s, you know, for the next umpteen years, Jennings was the best goalkeeper in the world. And I say that without any hesitation whatsoever. Uh, simply extraordinary. And the other person people forget about who who gave Spurs astonishing service and was a really good footballer is Chris Hewton. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. Chrissy was a fantastic footballer, apart from being, of course, almost painfully nice bloke as well. So happy, uh, happy St. Patrick's to all of you, including Robbie Keane, of course, who uh, no doubt is, is holding a St. Patrick's Day scarf above his head down and said he's always wanted to celebrate on this particular day. <laughs> always been his favourite saint. I mean, that would actually be true. Oh, yeah. No, no. I, I, that is true, yes, yeah. I've always, it's always been my dream to have a drink on St. Patrick's Day. Um, 
happy St. Patrick's Day to all of you around the world, whether you're Irish or not. I hope that the next generation of Irish Spurs fans get get Troy Parrott to be a successful player for, for yeah. to the sake of continuing this. Yeah, well, actually, to be truth is, of course, that they have got that at the moment in Harry Kane, haven't they? Yeah, yeah father's born true. in Galway. He's, yeah, he, yeah, he yeah. Is, is as Irish as, uh, uh, as Shamrock. And Matt Doherty as well, by the way, who could easily end up in PFA Team of the Year. It depends on if we, which if they pick it on on when even weeks. Yeah. If they pick it on even weeks of the year, he's definitely in. If they pick it on odd weeks, like like the whole team, he's definitely out. Uh, thank you, yeah, Robbie Keane. What a footballer, by the way. I've, I've, in my mind now, because you, 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 I'm seeing the goal against Chelsea where it comes off the back of one of their defenders. A four-all draw. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Where and he hits it with the first time with the inside of his right foot. Just incredible. That one against Blackburn from the throw-in where he kind of flicks it over two players and then kind of sort of actually kind of scuffs it in at the near post. Yeah, it's an amazing goal. And him and Berbatov. Um, where where Keane had to run until his legs were bloody stumps, but they, but it's but the but the partnership worked absolutely. Uh, let's move let's move on to the game last night. Um, Jack, you were there, um, having made a, what looked to me, uh, following you on your, your travels on Twitter, looked like a very very rainy journey and miserable looking journey. Um, but uh, what, what's the make of the game? Well, yeah, I was lucky enough to be to get driven all the way there and all the way back by oh, my great friend Dan Kilpatrick, who I'm sure listeners will know covers Tottenham for the Evening Standard. And also with the name well. of that Happy, happy yeah. St. Patrick, yeah. Patrick's Day. No doubt, having a good day. Uh, so he lives around the corner from me in South London and he drove me. Uh, and yeah, it was kind of rainy on the way there. So, we, we this is essential detail. Who gave you a lift of the game? Do we need it this? It is very, ah, very important. Yeah, I'm not disrespecting Dan by any Think stretch. Think of all the pointless stuff podcast, we talk but... about on this podcast. This is more interesting than some of that. James James has his mission to try and bring the podcast back to the central subject. And I don't, I don't just... Someone don't needs stick to, to football. He's telling me yeah. to stick to football. Not me, though. Um... <laughs> Uh, so, so James, you're in a cafe on the M23. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, ran into some traffic on the way there. Uh, got there just before kickoff, but the way back was a breeze. How was the football match? The football, yeah. Uh, you know what? I actually, I really enjoyed it. I uh, thought that Spurs played pretty well. I thought they they de- they deserved to win by miles. Mm. They missed three or four really good chances. Uh, they were in control for almost all of the game. Lots of individual performances went well. What I also enjoyed about it so much was there was none of the kind of... There's so much sort of anxiety and psychodrama and everything about Tottenham at the moment. And, you know, is Conte going to go? Is he going to stay? We'll get on all to that. that. Kind of, all, all that kind of stuff, which I'm sure we'll take, we'll, we'll take on later. And certainly, as a journalist, it kind of, you know, sometimes that sort of stuff could take over your mind so much you don't really forget about the, you know, the 11 against 11 on the pitch. So it was really nice to watch an actual football match and for Tottenham to, to play well and win and just to enjoy it for what it was. What did you make of it, um, James? Um, yeah, it was. I, I'd say it was a very comfortable win. I, it felt like an incredibly competent performance for a team who had been so erratic over the last two months. It was just a sort of steady... Not, it wasn't especially exciting, was it? There wasn't too much drama there. I think they could have won more comfortably than they did. Obviously, they had a few sort of one-on-ones. Kulazewski in the first half. Who was it in the second half? Reguilón had one in the second half. Reguilón had two, didn't he? Two, yeah, right, the game. The yeah. And Kane had that one after five minutes. So oh, that's yeah, of four, course. Yeah, that, that's yeah. four straightforward chances. They also should have had a penalty, but the referee decided it. With the, yeah. the weather was too miserable to get off the pitch. Yeah, let's get um, off here. Yeah, I've not, I've not got the XG, the, the famous XG stats to hand, but I would imagine that that would have been incredibly favourable for Spurs. I don't think Brighton had a shot on target. There's all sort of pot shots from long range. When you watch Brighton play, you do kind of really get a sense of why they don't score goals. And it, it's simply because they just don't shoot. 
there's two there's <laughs> two issues isn't there? they are trying to score the perfect goal and when they yeah. do get the ball in the box Mopé's first reaction is to look for somebody to run into to fall over <laughs> to elbow in the head um, he, he's <laughs> ex- I mean he's an extraordinarily gifted footballer on the days when he bothers and I, I wouldn't <laughs> want to be he's a play- bizarre player I wouldn't want to be playing against him in say 25 years time in a, in a five-a-side match because his touch is extraordinary but his touch these days is designed to to try and negotiate with the referee some kind of free kick or penalty and I don't think it's doing the team any good the problem was because it was on it overlapped with the Arsenal-Liverpool game I watched both games at the corner of my eye. I was watching Spurs and Arsenal. The standard in between the two games was ridiculous. And we'll get on to Arsenal and, and Liverpool in a minute, but um, it's probably Spurs, the pitch. Spurs, Spurs and Brighton looked like a, uh, a game between a competent team in Spurs' case and a team like Brighton, who, you know, if they hadn't made such a great start to the season, you say, "Well, that lot they'll be going to the Championship very, very soon." Um, but you know, you, you, we we can't have it both ways, can we? We can't say, "Oh, Spurs got beaten by X because X are a really good team," and then say. Um, the opposition are no good. Therefore, this is, it values the win. Any away win um, in the Premier League is is important. And I, I, I grew into Spurs as the game went on. I was fretting about them for a while. Um, and then they, they gradually took complete control of it. It should have been like the Leeds or Everton game, really. Yeah. If you put yeah. together yeah. the Kane one after five minutes, the Kulisewski one after about 35, 40 minutes, where he's running through on goal. I was so convinced yeah. in the press box, because we we got a good seat. We're quite low down. I was so certain that he was going to score. I was shocked that he didn't score that chance. Then you throw in the Regulon and the one in the second half, and it's kind of weird that they didn't come away with a massive margin from that game. It should have been like those other big wins. And it is... It does speak to the fact that in games when it clicks, Tottenham really do create a lot of chances. Now, I don't think we're seeing the same, with the exception of maybe the Burnley game, Tottenham's capacity to create chances is actually, I think, getting better and better and is now very good. Obviously, converting those performances into wins is proving slightly harder. That Kane chance early on where he took the ball off San- or Sanchez hit the ball or yeah. he dispossessed Sanchez and then kind of took it to a, a quite a, 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 a is that obtuse would that be an obtuse angle oh no sorry acute so narrow acute, is no you're right acute obtuse. sorry you're yeah, right yeah. acute yeah. angle and put it wide now a- a- anyone who watched the game abroad like me I-, I went abroad for a couple of hours to watch the game I didn't just sit <laughs> yeah. and watch it on a legal scene in my flat no I way why to watch would you do that on the Euro international st- Eurostar to Brussels on the international feed so yeah. I heard Tony Gale yeah. Tony Gale was like talking about it like it was a sitter that's absolute nonsense. He's on his weaker foot, and he's gone like to, to what we now know is an acute angle. I mean, it's not like it's not an easy chance. When I watched that live with my eyes, I thought it was hard. But then, when you watch the replays back, you want you think you realise that he actually had slightly more time, and maybe he might have been able to take to control the ball and then just what, roll but, it but, into but the net. If he, if he takes a touch there. Sanchez is getting back close to his goal. What's he going to do? Then put it on his right foot, and then he's going. Yeah. He hasn't really. He's not going to have improved the angle quickly enough to Maybe. avoid Sanchez getting back. He has to take that first time. Jack, since we're doing these these chances, um, you've twice now insisted about Sergio Reguilón's chance. He had two almost identical chances from two identical balls from Harry Kane. No, I think I probably merged the two together in my mind. Ah, no, um, he had two very similar chances. Yeah. When he gets the ball, he's quite erratic. But his running to oh. get to the ball is incredible. But this has been my like point kind, all, all season about him. As he, an outlet, the running's as a amazing. Kind, but. Yeah, as an outlet to, to kind of run deep. He's like a kind of wide receiver. He, he, he starts running and he knows where the ball's going to come and Kane's good enough to find him. And it's beautiful when it works. But then obviously, unlike a wide receiver, his job isn't just to catch it. It's to kick it into the goal. 
Uh, and it's when it comes so this to... Is, this is top-line explanation of sport. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is what people are here for. He says football and American football are actually two completely different sports, you see. It never really occurred to me before until I started this bit. Because of the name. It's just, actually you really seen the same. Brighton selection robbed us there, didn't it? Uh, I, I know he's had injuries, so Tarek Lamptey didn't play. I was so looking forward to watching Tarek Lamptey and uh, Sergio Reguilón race each other up and down the pitch for the whole 90 minutes. It would have been great, great fun, but they played Veltman instead, so... Um, but the I, interesting I, thing about Veltman is that Brighton employed a similar tactic that uh, Watford did on New Year's Day, which is having their right midfielder work as a kind of auxiliary right back to come back and help out. So yesterday it was Solly March, who was kind of nominally on the right wing, but would come back to play as like an extra right back and turn their defence into a back five with Veltman tucking in, which of course, Spurs fans will know, is what uh, Juraj Kuchka did for Ranieri's Watford coming back into a back five when Tottenham won 1-0 at Vicarage Road on New Year's Day. So uh, clearly, you know, teams like to try and cover Regulon's running if they can, but he's just so good at it that they can't always catch up. And and Kane is so good at that ball inside one of the two markers that uh, it's sometimes pointless to have them there. It worked well enough for for Watford for a long, long time. I noticed as well that uh, after the game, Spurs... Uh, Twitter feed had your choices for man in the match and the four beautiful faces appeared. You could vote for them. Among none of those four faces was that of Eric Dyer, which I found bizarre. Because yeah, it does seem. I know Brighton don't present much of a threat, but also it, Eric got injured, wore the uh, the Terry Butcher headband. It, it may have changed to another name now that with the passing of the years. Perhaps you, you pick him out easier because he's wearing a, you know, a, a white skull cap. But he, I, thought, I thought he... Absolutely marshaled the defence, headed the ball away relentlessly when Brighton were reduced to banging it in there. Um, they were just a good performance, but I just want to mention Dyer among those. He was very good. I'm trying to think who the modern Terry Butcher would be. I have, I have an image of, did David Luiz once have like his head strapped up? And then it made his hair kind of go yeah. up, like properly like side yeah. up, like right up. Like he sort of looked like a bit of broccoli or something. Yeah. I guess Terry Butcher, Terry Butcher remains in the mind because I'm, luckily for Eric, um, and for all of us, uh, it, it was so blood-soaked, wasn't it? That was what was so brilliant about it. The bandage wasn't actually working. M- medicine has come a long way. Oh, hasn't it? Magic sponge technology. Talk to me about who else then, other than Eric Dyer and Kane, who was, you know, a mixture of a bit lackadaisical, I thought, at times in possession in the game. Also clogged. There was a lot of kicking at Kane's ankles in the course of the second lot, half. Yeah. It really was. I mean, it was obviously policy. All, they all had good games. Romero, Bentancur, Kulusevski. Bentancur, of course, particularly for his assist and recovering from a poor game in Manchester. Are we yet at the stage where we can say, James, that uh, Paratici is getting something right, getting it all right? Um, I, th- I think we can afford to be quite optimistic about those two. I mean, they've both had a couple of iffy games, but I don't think that's unreasonable when you're moving to a new league for the first time in a team who are clearly generally quite erratic so yeah I would, I'd definitely be encouraged by the two of them and you know you, you mentioned Romero as well who obviously came in in the summer who also despite a few uh will diplomatically call them rash moments where he decided to run up to the halfway line and kick someone for no reason uh he certainly looks to bring a bit more stability to the to that back line I mean I suppose that's as much because Dyer goes in when Dyer comes into the middle obviously when Dyer was out it did look a bit of a mess so yeah, you can kind of see it starting to click into shape. I mean, my reservations are still the same, and I know we're going to come onto this in a bit. Mm. It feels like the, the, the team is making progress, and there's a bit more identity there, and you can see how they're trying to play, and you can see 
kind of movements and little partnerships developing that you would expect to kind of grow over the course of a few years. But the concern, obviously, is that if the coach changes in the summer, then a lot of that work probably ends up getting unpicked, which would be incredibly frustrating because it would probably make next season another transitional season. Jack, you're watching them all there. What do we? What do you think? I mean, I'm including Christian Romero in Paratici's influence. So my man of the match was Romero. I thought he was amazing. I just love watching him play. I can't think of a defender who is... I can't think of a player who's quite like him in terms of combining his incredible aggression without the ball. You know, the way that he... The way that he tries to win every single tackle. Like, we've seen players... We have seen defenders like that in the Premier League before, but not many with quite the sort of violence, I think, of, of Romero. If he's got a problem with an, with an opponent, whether it's Richarlison or whoever, he knows that maybe if he gives him a big kick, that's the best way of de-escalating the situation and making sure that he doesn't have to deal with him again later. That's just one side of Romero. The other side of Romero is that he's incredibly good on the ball. Like, so much, everything starts with him. You know, the first two goals against Everton, the first two goals against Manchester City, the... The Harry Kane uh, chance that was saved by Edison against Manchester City, which would have been a remarkable goal. Even yesterday, you know, the first goal starts, you know, not only is the move starts with him pushing up the pitch in the first place, but then the, it's actually finished off by him because Kulusevsky's shot goes in off his ankle. His ability to influence the game in possession and to create things and to be a creative attacking player who even now he's kind of getting into the box. Like we saw him get into the box yesterday. He got into the box when Maguire scored the own goal at Old Trafford. So. Honestly, listeners, if you can think of any centre-back who combines that that kind of aggression defensively with that creativity on the ball, I would love to know who it is because I cannot think of a precedent for, for Christian Romero. Uh, I definitely think that the return of Dyer has helped him in that way because he has, he has and it's not all about Eric, of course, um, you're right, but he has absolutely unleashed himself as a forward player, hasn't he, since Dyer got back in there. And I love the fact that uh, in the Premier League where everyone is worried about the opposition, He's prepared. He gets the ball. He plays. He plays it forward, and then fifty percent of the time, he bombs on into the box himself. Um, and you're right to say that. I think. I think that's. A, it's a. It's a destabilizing possibility for the opposition that Spurs haven't had in the past. I also thought Ben Tanker was really good. Uh, I thought that was probably as well as I've seen him play. He was really good, like physically getting in the way of op- of opponents tackling. Obviously, played that great ball through for the second goal. You can just tell watching him play that he he kind of probably is Spurs' best central midfielder now already, particularly with Skip, with his kind of ongoing injury problem, James. He does kind of combine the silk and steel like Romero as well, doesn't he? He kind of has the sense of being able to tick those two boxes. He straddles the two things. He, off, he offers both sides yeah, of the point. Completely. And he's got an ability to keep the ball under pressure in tight spaces, which Hoiberg and Winks just don't have. Yeah, I thought he was good as well. And Kulisewski was good. So yeah, those three big Paratici buys uh, are actually, I think, have improved the first team quite a lot. Uh, so even though, you know, Brian Gill's back in Spain already and Emerson Royale is now back up to Matt Doherty, I do think that, you know, Paratici can point to those guys and say, well, look, I have, you know, I have improved the first team a bit here. Unless you're one of the petrodollar teams or, or super, super financially strong and active, you know, Joe Lewis is a very rich man, but he's not active in that way, is he? That's all you can ask of coaches and directors of football to bring in players to improve the first team. It's 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 an easier job if you are Manchester City or Chelsea were 
um, where you can just buy an obvious ready-made replacement. It's improving the first team without that possibility that I think is the main job of everybody else. Look, this is good. Everything is positive, but we're football fans um, and we're paid to uh, to analyse the game. The only negative, I would guess, for Spurs in the course of the evening was that whereas at Old Trafford, Son had slid around on a relatively dry pitch, here on an absolutely wet pitch, he kept his feet, but he just wasn't in very good form, which continues a trend for him. And so I was interested in, in that press conference when one of our braver colleagues suggested that uh, to Antonio Conte that he should drop Son and um, was given, um, you, you would have needed the, a micrometer to measure the short, shortness of the shrift he was, he was given uh, for that one, James. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, you can understand that given the output that he's kind of continued to provide over the last couple of months. But it is, certainly if we're talking about, you know, the eye test, he hasn't performed anywhere near as well in the last two or three months as he had done earlier in the season or last season. He has always been one of those players, and I know people don't like to hear this, and I think we did talk about this earlier in the week. But he has always been one of those players who's been a bit, his form has been a bit patchy over the course of the season, and he'll have like a really a hot streak, a purple patch, where he'll score 12 goals in 12 games and look like the best player in the league for a bit, and then he'll kind of go off the boil for a month or so and then, and then kind of come back. But this has felt like quite a long period of him not playing brilliantly. And, you know, it is... It's probably childish to get too upset about that in the circumstances, given mm. he has still can continue to score goals and get assists. But I have to admit, I do wonder whether the system is partly the problem. Go on. Uh, you're talking about picking, you know, because I don't think Kane played especially well last night either. To be honest, I mean, obviously he scored a very well taken goal, and you know, you mentioned the two passes to to Reguilon, uh later in the game, and they're both superb passes. We know he can do that, but. I I kind of wonder whether Kulazewski, as well as he's played, maybe sort of unsettles the balance there between the two of them a bit. Like Son doesn't always seem to be making the same runs that he was making before. And I wonder whether that's part of the problem. I mean, I don't necessarily think it it, it would be, but then Kulazewski's kind of not quite as quick and standing higher up the pitch and the opposition defence is sat 10 yards deeper. Then maybe Son, it's harder to time those runs in behind when the defence is that little bit deeper, maybe? I don't know. I thought Antonio Conte was absolutely right, Jack, to say, you know, it, it's ludicrous. People, and this is where people who do what we do for a living um, sometimes butt heads with the professionals. It's one thing in a in, in, a, in, a, in a game, you know, in football manager, say, oh, I'm going to try him now. But in reality, if you've got a player like Son, you are going to deploy him, aren't you? Yeah, completely. Would you want to play Lucas? Would you want to play Bergwin? Instead of him, I think if they did that, they would. If they did it, hypothetically, if they did that, they would not score, and then bring on Son for Bergwin after an hour, and they would have wasted an uh, wasted an hour of play. I guess since we talked, James, on Monday in your absence, we talked about a possible six point swing with the, with Arsenal having to play Liverpool. We we can't avoid talking that game, and I suppose it was as good an evening, James, as Spurs could have hoped for because. The team who hold a whip hand, let's be honest, and most of the cards in the race were fourth, did eventually get beaten. Yeah. And I mean, I looked at the odds after that game for the top four and Arsenal were still, I think, odds on to get fourth place, which is probably an indication of, well, obviously an indication of them being favourites for that. But they've got so many hard games to come. And I know Charlie talked about this the other day. We look at Arsenal's fixtures. I mean, even, even you know, teams like, I know Spurs still have to play Aston Villa too, but, but Arsenal at Aston Villa on Saturday. No, they could they could drop points again, and that could be the moment 
And it's easy to say every single match week, this is the key one. But uh, Arsenal having a, a winnable game that they could drop points in and Spurs having a, 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 a similar, a winnable game that they could drop points in. You can kind of see that it could just sort of be the pivotal moment if Arsenal were to drop points and Spurs were to win. Then you go into the international break, suddenly with that dynamic feeling quite different. And, you know, look, we say this every time a team goes on a winning run, when you lose, even if it's to the best team in the league or second best team in the league, it's still like a sort of mental hurdle to overcome, to to, to to kind of regain that momentum immediately. And if they were to drop points again, then you you know you have to say it would be a big test for them to kind of rediscover that form and to win consistently. Clearly, the big test for Spurs is to win two games in a row for the first time this year, yeah. which is uh, probably quite a damning indictment on how they've done over the last two or three months. And it makes this game on Sunday against West Ham absolutely huge for two reasons. One, mentally to win two games in a row finally, I think would be a huge deal. Two, to beat one of the teams who are still just about in contention for top four. That's a huge game now, all of a sudden. Yeah, the pressure's come on it because of the win at Brighton. If they, if they, yeah. if Spurs are drawn at Brighton for some reason, then the West Ham game, it would be almost an irrelevance except for uh, local supremacy. Now it's become... Uh, Jack, I, I hate to say this phrase most of the season because, you know, you only get the three points. This is, I think it's a must-win for Spurs at the weekend. It, it, yeah. it is a must-win. I think there's a huge difference between... If this if this weekend goes well, then I think Tottenham can go into the international break preparing for the run-in for the season with quite a lot of optimism and everything. But if it goes bad, let, let's say hypothetically Arsenal win and Tottenham lose mm. and the gap goes back to what it was two days ago, everyone will be so miserable. And I think it'll all be, oh, you know, wasted season, another season of Europa League, another season playing Carabag or whoever. And I think people will just get really, really down. So, uh, yeah, if I was being optimistic, I'd point to the fact that West Ham have got probably a a more important game this evening in the Europa League against Sevilla. Uh, They lost the first leg 1-0, I think. So they kind of, they obviously have to win this evening. It's uh, it's a big, you know, this is not a, a stage of European football that West Ham are very familiar with, which means that they really have to, I think, put all their eggs in this basket. Plus, they've got injuries. I think Bowen's injured, and I think there's other knocks as well. So, maybe it'll turn out that West Ham come in a bit tired, but then, you know, I've kind of... We've, I'm sure I've predicted that sort of thing before this season. It, has, it has, hasn't turned out to be true. That may be the key factor in kind of ending this run of win-lose, win-lose, win-lose. The fact West Ham are playing like a big game tonight, which will be a, definitely be a draining match. That might just give Spurs the edge on Sunday. But as Jack says, we do say that quite often and it doesn't go that way. And if I was to be pessimistic, looking at the qualities of teams that Spurs do and don't want to face at the moment, you know, we know that they like playing against teams who push high up the pitch, who leave space to attack. West Ham, are so, they're so well organised, they don't leave any space, they're happy to, de- to defend deep if they have to, and they're brilliant on set pieces, both defensively and attackingly, which makes me, all of which makes me quite pessimistic for how the game will go. Well, that has to break because... Win lose win lose win lose gives you one and a half points a game and that doesn't get you it barely get well, it won't get you into the into the Europa League never mind the Champions League listen thank you for all that still a great deal to talk about here on the View from the Lane and uh, we are currently listening to James Moore and Jack Pitbrook and me Danny Kelly next time we'll get we've got a whole lot of stuff to get through including analysing the latest musings of Antonio Conte. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes 
and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobeUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Yeah, welcome back to The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. Alongside me today, I'm delighted to say both James Moore and Jack Pitt Brook will leave the Brighton game behind now. And that was preceded, of course, by another of Antonio Conte's press conferences in which, Jack, you commented on, on Twitter. He once again went off on a kind of reverie um, about his future. First of all, what did he actually say? So he was talking about what will happen at the end of the season and how the important moment is to um, compare the visions that he has with the vision of the club, by which I think he means Daniel Levy, and Fabio Paratici. And he, he said that, more or less, if the visions are not compatible, he will stop. That is to say, I think this is the first time really that, maybe the second time after Burnley away a few weeks ago, that Conte has brought out into the open the possibility that he might quit in the summer if he doesn't feel like people at the club agree with him. Uh, And it's weird, it's one of those things where normally a manager threatening to quit would be a really big story. But because Conte's been kind of talking around this and hinting at it for so much the last month or two, oh, isn't this, you know, this job's much harder than I thought it was going to be, I don't know how long I'm going to be here, I won't promise to be here next season, all that kind of thing. It does make you think that um, you kind of get used to it. You're kind of inured to it, to Conte talking like this. Yeah, I, I am so, so bored of it now. Like, it doesn't even it doesn't even annoy me now. Well, I mean, it does in that it, it's boring. It, the same as before, I don't see any benefit, really. I don't see that, that Levy or Lewis are going to suddenly say, oh, actually, yeah, we will chuck an extra 100 million quid into the pot for the summer because this guy's had a bit of a drop in a press conference. It's just not... It's going to make absolutely no difference to him uh, or to them, I should say. And it just makes it just makes the club look like a bit of a joke uh, uh, and... I mean, I mean, I suppose the positive in repeatedly doing it is that it will also lose influence. Uh, will also kind of lose effect in terms of the players. Like, I, I doubt they're now kind of sat there in the dressing room or were sat there in the dressing room before the game last night, thinking, "Oh, he said he might leave if he doesn't get what he wants in the summer," because he said it so many times now. But it's just it's not going to touch our sides, is it? 
but yeah, I, it, it really feels like it sort of undermines the club as a sort of as a kind of as a kind of broader body. It's like he's kind of he's kind of he's basically <laughs> to use a colloquial term, mugging the club off. After a while, you know, you, I know you're the great Antonio Conte, and you know how to how to um, clench your fists on the side of a football pitch, and you've won titles and all the rest of it. But Spurs is Spurs, and eventually just slagging them off over and over and over again. Just uh, you know, I'm starting to. It's like a bore in a in a public bar now. You're almost thinking, is there a pub a hundred yards away? I'll go to that um, rather than have to sit through another one of, of these. And of course, they're all expressed in that kind of sub undertaker tone that he's adopted for answering questions. I wonder, Jack, whether his newly renewed enthusiasm for slagging off the job that he actually has was sharpened by the fact that both Manchester United and Paris Saint-Germain went crashing out of the Champions League in recent days. Maybe, although, and I'm sure that, well, look, I don't think he'll go to United. I think it's much more plausible that he could go to PSG. I think PSG were interested in him last year. I think even when, you know, maybe when there was a bit of a question mark over Pochettino's future, I think PSG looked into that. So I think it's behind Zidane, I'd say that Conte is probably the next most likely next manager of PSG, assuming Pochettino goes in the summer. But I don't think Conte would necessarily... So I, I don't think Conte... I was going to say Conte doesn't need to criticise Tottenham in order to get those jobs, but maybe criticising Tottenham represents a form of kind of reputation management for him. You know, if he can say, if he can say, well, you know, Tottenham were rub- Tottenham have been rubbish for years, and I, they're a basket case, and I can't fix them, then maybe he might think that 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 represents a kind of case to a Nasser Al-Khalifi or Florentino Perez or whoever to say, well, you know, it's not my fault that Tottenham ended up in fifth. I'm going to I'm going to give him one tiny bit of a chance to get off get off the hook here, Jack. You're at the press conferences. Are people now starting, as often happens, to ask him deliberately pointed questions just to get him to repeat the same stuff because it makes headlines? Well, I think there's been I think that's just quite a common thing in press conferences all the time, like mm-hmm. whether it's Conte or not. I do think that you know journalists are always going to ask him about about his future. Are you staying? I mean, that's it's such an obvious. I know that some fans might rather they ask different questions, but for newspaper journalists, that is a very natural thing to ask Conte. So I, I do think that this this kind of cycle will continue. I think everyone's just really just waiting to see what happens at the end of the season now. I still think that everything's on the table. You know, if they come forth, I think he'll stay. If they don't come forth, I think it it's probably less likely that he'll stay, but it's by no means certain that he'll go. But we just have to really wait and see. But I, I think every time that Conte says we'll have to compare our visions at the end of the season, he's basically, I think that's a kind of get-out clause for him. It's basically rolling the pitch for him to be able to say, oh, well, you know, I, I wanted to stay, but our visions actually didn't align. And that's why that's why I've had to go and take the money at PSG or, or, or wherever. That's just, my, that's just my interpretation of it as to the sort of political positioning that I think he's doing at the moment. James, you've been following Spurs uh, for a reasonable length of time. Do you believe they're already in the planning stages with plan B if he does decide that the planets don't align in his favour? <laughs> what, what, Spurs? I mean, if last summer is anything to go by, but imagine possibly not. <laughs> I, I I would hope that they have have something in mind or someone in mind uh, for for that not entirely inconceivable possibility. But I I would have no idea who that would be, and and I would be worried, like 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 I was saying, given the names that were incredibly close to getting that job last summer, and indeed the guy who eventually did last summer, we'd be quite worried that. Uh, 
it probably wouldn't be someone who's going to elevate the club in the way that Conte in theory should be able to. So over the last few days, we've seen, or I've seen, on the one hand, a lot, lots of Spurs fans on Twitter saying, I'm bored of Conte, this is so tiresome. But I said that, to, I tweeted that to you. You did, but it wasn't only you. There were dozens of them saying that they're bored and tired of Conte and all his, his kind of press conference stuff. But at the game yesterday, the away end was so vocal in its Antonio, <laughs> yeah. Antonio, Antonio. Do you send? I mean, I'm not. I'm. This is not me criticizing fans for holding two two different opinions at the same time because that's just what fans do. But do you do you sense any kind of distinction amongst the fan base or different groups of the fan base that might feel one way, whether that's home home fans versus away fans or online fans versus non online fans or uh, on this Conte issue? I, I kind of feel like the environment is different at a game. Like, like I've definitely seen a split on Twitter with people who are kind of fed up of Conte and people who are kind of la- completely lapping it up and thinking all of this stuff that he says is absolutely incredible. Like, which I just can't, I can't really comprehend, but fair enough. But at, at a game, I mean, I've not been to a game for ages. So at a, at a home game, you just, it's, it's, it's unified. It's not like, I'm sure that, you know, the same people will be, people from those two group, groups will be in the ground. But it's not like a pronounced difference. It's not like there are people kind of bickering over whether or not he's a good manager. We sort of previewed West Ham, but let's let's do that uh, a, a little bit more in depth, if not in, uh, at length. I suppose one of the, the I mean, you talked about West Ham having this game that they've got to play on the Thursday. Um, that is somewhat negated by the fact that we are now, uh, James, at a spell where it seems that Spurs never change the team. Um, I can't say I blame Conte for that because, um, you know, it, it looks to me like he's got, with allowing for the injury to skip, that he's got as good a team out there as he can. But they're not going to rotate, are they? They'll put out, I suspect, exactly the same 11 injuries are notwithstanding. Yeah, I mean, I guess the kind of players you, or the positions where he may have rotated would be left wing back where he clearly likes Cessignon. Cessignon. Yeah. But he's obviously gone back to Reguilón again now that Cessignon's injured. So that may have been somewhere where he could have flipped it. And like you say, in midfield with Hoiberg and Bentenko in the last few games where you would think he certainly would want to skip to playing some of those matches over the last few weeks. So, yeah, I suppose that that kind of retention of the same starting eleven is probably born partly out of the injuries. And then who else is there who could realistically come in? I mean, we've talked about Kulazevsky having played really well in the last few weeks and Lucas is probably the only other player you look at on the bench and say... He could, he should feel a bit put out that he's not starting games. Yeah, so there's, there isn't anyone else, is there? I don't think, you know, I don't think Davinson Sanchez has any right to be kind of knocking at the manager's door saying he should be in a team given how Dyer and Romero are playing. Davis has been incredibly steady and consistent all season, really. So I think it, kind of, it, it makes perfect sense to stick with it. And I think, especially now you've got the international break, you may as well kind of go with your best 11 and then kind of see where we are when we come back. Um, I want to end by um, talking about. Some people no longer wear the holy white shirt of Spurs. But on the Tuesday, people were pointing out that Adele Tarabt had played in a Benfica team that's now through to the quarterfinal of the Champions League. And then last night, we had A, the most eye-catching Champions League result of the season, I guess, with Juventus nil, Villarreal 3. But that was essentially a kind of mad North London party stroke derby. Obviously, Wojciech Szczesny was on the losing side. Uh, open your window, hear the cheering still going on with that sentence. Um, <laughs> but Villarreal had Arsenal's old manager Unai Emery 
Francis Coquelin, who knew he was still playing in midfield, and a trio of what can only be described as Spurs legends. Etienne Capu played. Giovanni Lo Celso played, but was substituted just as the Villarreal got their, their three goals. And even Serge Aurier had a good game. It was just a magnificent Spurs and, to a lesser extent, Arsenal fest in what was an amazing result. We, we should point out, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big shame to see Juventus go out of the uh, oh, Champions heartbreaking. League to a, to a quite, quite smaller team. And I know our old friend Giorgio Chiellini will be devastated, which is a shame because since he marked Spurs off hmm. in, uh, in 2018, Juventus has been knocked out of the Champions League by Ajax, Lyon, Porto and Villarreal. I mean, it's, it's it's not quite a Europa League group, but it's kind of, if that was a Champions League group, you'd say it was a rubbish Champions League group. Well, and also, so since he made that famous comment, he's effectively cursed Juventus and that has made them so bad in Europe. You know, Tottenham have obviously, Tottenham haven't played in the Champions League for the last two years, but have still been nevertheless in the got, got to a final in that time. Or maybe it's because Juventus sold their soul to Cristiano Ronaldo in 2018 and, uh, and in doing so destroyed their identity as a football club, destroyed the balance of their dressing room, destroyed their approach to the game on the pitch, and they've been in free fall ever since. What a good decision by Fabio Paratici that was. And at the, at the end of the game, they cut to the crowd where the aforementioned Chiellini was uh, sat next to Agnelli, the owner of the club, who, and I don't know whether it's legal in Italy, was puffing thoughtfully on a cigar while staring out at the flaming embers of what was once his Champions League dreams. And hats off to Unai Emery. The bloke is, well, whatever that year he spent in Arsenal, he is a tactical genius. Guys, unless it's, uh, we've got even more to add to what has been a, a lovely washing machine of stuff about Spurs, I'll say thank you very much indeed and remind our listeners that if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, and you should be, uh, you can read all of our articles on Spurs as well as an absolute cornucopia of other stuff by simply going to theathletic.com slash Spurs pod. All it remains for me is to repeat again, a happy St. Patrick's Day to you all, and we'll be back again at the start of next week when Spurs will have played that gigantic game against West Ham. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, James. And thanks you for listening. The Athletic.